We're going to be in John chapter 13 this morning. John chapter 13, starting in verse 1, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God, was going back to God, arose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no fellowship with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, Not all of you are clean. Now when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher, if I then, excuse me, your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is God's word. You can be seated. Well, if it's your first time joining us, uh, we're glad that you're here. Welcome. Uh, this year here at Refuge is all about the Bible. It's all about knowing the Bible. It's all about reading the Bible. It's all about understanding the story of God in order to make our story and the story of God one, to be invited into the story of God. And so what we've been doing is, as a church, we've been reading through the Bible together. We're doing um, a thing called Read Scripture, put on by the Bible Project. And then we've also been taking time on Sunday mornings to talk about the major themes and characters and story of the Bible. And so right now we're in the middle of a series on the character of Christ. And in uh, weeks past, we considered Jesus the teacher our rabbi who calls us to be his disciples. Remember we talked about how um, the term Christian is only used three times in the Bible, but the word or term disciple is used 269 times. And there is no follower of Jesus who is not a disciple of Jesus. It's either you're a disciple of Jesus or you're not with Jesus at all. 
And so then the call is to be with Jesus. The call is to become like Jesus. And the call is to do what he did. And we talked about how this is a lifelong journey that we learn and grow in. Being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus in order to do what he did. Then we consider Jesus the healer. We looked at how Jesus, he was a healer and he went around doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil. He went around reversing the curse of sin everywhere that he went. But Jesus came to do even a deeper work than that. He came to heal sin, which is the root of all the evil in the world. Jesus came to heal, to forgive sin. And he came to heal us so that we can be part of God's kingdom. Now, last week we looked at Jesus the Savior. And we saw how Jesus is the true and greater older brother who went out looking for the lost. He went out looking for us, we who were far from God, and he spent his inheritance, he gave his life in order to bring us into the family of God. And so we saw just a little bit into the heart of Jesus, the Savior, who sets all of his benefits aside to seek what is lost, to save what is lost. And so today, as we continue this series, we want to talk about Jesus, the Servant. Now, like some of the other titles that we've looked at, Jesus the Servant is not a title you'll actually find in the Bible, but it is something that is undeniable and unavoidable when talking about the person or career of Jesus. Jesus was a servant. I mean, just read a page of the Gospels to observe how Jesus was always available, always at people's service. I mean, you know, imagine how much time he spent serving the needy, the demon-possessed, the lame, the blind. He served each one who came to him. He, he never turned anyone away who asked him, who came to him in sincere faith. Now, we have, we have scenarios where the multitudes are there. We're told that they don't, there's not belief there. There's no faith. But any time someone asked Jesus to heal them, heal them he did it. He served whoever came to him. And this was just his character, part of his life. Along with that, there are multiple times when Jesus taught his disciples about true leadership and about true greatness. He would always emphasize humility and servanthood. Excuse me. He would say things like, whoever would be greatest among you, let him be the servant of all. All. Or in one particular passage, we, we have this story where James and John, who are actually cousins of Jesus, they get their mom to come and to ask Jesus a favor. So they put their mom up to this, and she comes to them. And, and this is all the context. is Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to suffer, to die. And, and the disciples don't quite get this yet, and so they have this conversation about greatness on the road. So James and John put their mom up to this task of asking Jesus, Jesus, when you enter your kingdom, they're thinking that's going to happen in Jerusalem, can John and James sit on your right hand and on your left hand? So what Jesus does is he deals with the situation, but then he gathers his disciples around him, and he says this, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles Lord it over them. The idea there is they rule heavily. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. This is not the kind of kingdom that I am setting up. 
Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul the Apostle, many years later, would highlight for the church in Philippi the servant-oriented work of Jesus in our redemption. He gave this as an example that every follower of Jesus is to give close attention to in order to gain the mind and posture of Jesus. That we are, like the writer of Hebrews says, that we are to consider Jesus. That means to, to stare long. It's like the way, you know, if you were going to um, the Met in New York, if you were going to D. Young here, you would stand in front of a beautiful painting and you would take it and you would observe it in order to understand it, in order to pull out, you know, the heart of the artist and, and the, the context of maybe what was going on, the struggle. This is what the writer of Hebrews exhorts us to do consider Jesus consider him give him your attention give him your gaze study him and Paul says in order to gain the mind and posture of Jesus here's what he says have this mind among you which is yours in Christ Jesus or in other words this is what you have been called to though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or something to be used only for himself. He did not take his position as, well, it's just for me. No, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross, and because of this, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name. This comes from the Hebrew Old Testament. The name is the way that the Hebrews would refer to God. It is the name, the name that they dare not say because it is so holy. God the Father bestows on him the name, and it is above every name, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that he is king to the glory of God the Father. Now, I don't think that there is a more picturesque scene in all of the gospels of the servanthood of Jesus than John chapter 13. I just want to read the first five verses again for us. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, right, this is right before the crucifixion, this is right before the sufferings of Christ. It says, Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That is that has said steadfast, faithful love that is always spoken of of God. During supper, When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and they had come from God, was going back to God, arose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Does this sound familiar? Is Paul possibly just paraphrasing 
the story of John chapter 13? I think so. Sorry. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, far from being a one-off act in Jesus' ministry, Jesus' foot-washing act, as I said, it's picturesque of his whole earthly ministry. And this scene has been preached about, lectured on. I mean, there are like probably copious amounts of books that have been written on servant leadership, looking at Jesus in this scene here. Uh, it's been illustrated. It's been acted out in films and on the stage. It's been painted on magnificent canvases and put in stained glass windows. And it's a breathtaking scene as we watch Jesus who John tells us in John, in, in John chapter 1 is the eternal God, the one who was God and the one who was with God. As we see him here descend all the way to the feet of humanity in order to wash them, in order to cleanse them. In a shame-honor culture, feet, uh, you know, uh, you can even read this in the, in the book of Joshua, I believe also there are scenes of this in, in 1 Samuel. But the kings, when they would conquer another king, you know what they would do? They wouldn't, they wouldn't kill them right away. I mean, if it happened in battle, like, okay, well, whatever. But they would have these whole ceremonies. And what they would do is the king would lie down before the conquering king. And you know what the king would do? He would put his foot on his neck. And this was like, you are below my feet even. It was just this picture of shame, of this picture of authority over. Look at this scene. Where does Jesus go? He goes to the feet of humanity. He goes to the lowest position possible to wash and to cleanse humanity. John lets us in on the mental space of Jesus in this context. And I think, <clears throat> I think this is absolutely vital to understand this before we talk at all about application. Jesus knows his mission is almost complete. It's time for him to leave this world. He's completed his mission to love his people to the uttermost. He will finish that mission by his death, by his resurrection, and of course his ascension. But these are the last acts. And so this is, if you will, these the, the scenes in John are the last will and testament of Jesus. His parting words to them. He knows that the Father has committed all things under his power. That he's come from God. He knows he's going back to God. And it's in that context, that state of mind, that Jesus arises. That he stands up and begins to act out this scene. Jesus, at this point, is in a place of absolute assurance and confidence of who he is. Where he's come from, where he's going his power, his authority. His mission has come to its final hour. We almost expect, after a sentence like this, this self-realization of Jesus, right, for him to be like, how great am I? Disciples, 
Gaze upon my greatness. Gaze upon my glory. Take it all in. And, and to kind of pontificate, if you will, about his mission. Maybe to talk about his triumph as he destroys the works of the devil and being lifted up on the cross. How this <laughs> just I, I, ironic scene, how God is going to defeat all the powers of evil through weakness, through being lifted up on the cross. But he doesn't do any of that. He does the opposite of what we expect. Jesus, knowing who he is, knowing where he came from, knowing where he's going, knowing that the Father has put everything in his care, he stood up from dinner, took off his outer clothing, and dressed himself with a towel and, to be, and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel he's wearing, getting all of their filth on Himself. He's carrying it. It's on him. Frederick Bruner, from his uh, commentary in the Gospel of John, he says this, The physical description of our new and surprising waiters disrobing and re-robing is probably intended in John's design to be a theological picture of Jesus' whole career, but especially of his coming passion. Listen to this. He takes off his purely divine prerogatives from heaven, he puts on his human towel of earthly service to this world, and he prepares to wash us, his people, in his cleansing crucifixion, depicted here as a foot washing. And in this way, the foot washing becomes a dramatic enactment of the Christology of the hymn in Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Can we just close and say Amen. It's been said of the Gospel of John that it is simple enough for a child to receive and yet deep enough to where the greatest minds of the world are still astounded by its mysteries. I mean, just, just right there, just everything that's packed into what Jesus is doing in this, se- in this scene. The disrobing is a picture of the incarnation. The stooping to the disciples' feet is the work that he has done to serve humanity. The cleansing is the work of his cross. Now we're told that as Jesus is washing the disciples' feet, he comes to Peter, and in classic Peter form, he objects to what Jesus is doing. Right? It's always Peter. And basically, you know, Lord, you think I'm going to let you wash my feet? Jesus, like master teacher, and we've been talking about that, right? Jesus is the master rabbi. They know that. They know about his authority. Peter's the one, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the king of Israel. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the one that the prophets and the psalmists and everyone, Moses himself, wrote about. You're the king of kings. You are not going to wash my feet. Peter understood This does not make sense. And culturally speaking, Peter is absolutely correct in his understanding. Jesus is doing something that is beneath him, and it's the whole point. Foot washing, that not only included dirt and grime from the foul roads of ancient times that were just, you know, some cobblestone, but a lot of dirt roads, right, with horses and mules and camels walking on, 
It would often include animal and human excrement, carrying all kinds of filth and disease. And in fact, foot washing was beneath even the lowest of servants. So who washed someone else's feet? Nobody. If you would go into someone's house, there was a bowl or, for you to wash your own feet. Nobody washed your feet. You washed your own stinking feet, right? Nobody wants to go that low or touch that. It's disgusting, right? It's like, it's like you know, using the bathroom. Nobody wipes you. You wipe yourself. It's kind of the same idea. I mean, I, I know that's a little crude, but really, that's what it was considered. It was so low, nobody did it. And so, this is from Frederick Bruner again. What makes the fourth gospel account so extraordinary is that there is no parallel in surviving ancient literature for a person of superior status voluntarily washing the feet of someone of inferior status. Jesus' act, therefore, represents an assault on the usual notions of hierarchy, a subversion of the normal categories of honor and shame. It is not just an honored teacher who is performing a shameful act, but a divine figure with sovereignty over the cosmos who has taken on the role of a slave. Jesus goes lower than anyone in human history. That's the idea. In order to serve. In order to wash and in order to cleanse. So Peter gets it. Jesus gets my king, my Lord, this is so far beneath you. You will not wash me. And Jesus begins to let Peter in on the mystery. He will not understand right now, but later he will. What I am doing, you don't get. But Peter replies again, you will never wash my feet. And here's here's the clincher, right? If I do not wash you, You have no fellowship with me. Peter, this is it. This is our bond. If you will not let me serve you, we have no share. We have no fellowship. I think what we need to understand about Jesus the servant is that Jesus' act of service, before it is an act to emulate, it is first a gift that we must receive. With passages like this, we often jump immediately to the application. Jesus was a servant. Jesus went low, so must we. Jesus washed feet, so must we. And this is true, absolutely. He is our master. He's our teacher. He's our rabbi. He's our king. We follow his lead. We were becoming like him in order to do what he did. But it is a biblical command that before you act for God, you must first allow him to act for you. Before you serve God and serve others, you must receive and know that God in Christ humbled himself and served you. You must, I must, allow Jesus to go low for my sake. I must receive it, you must receive it, or else we have no part, no portion, no fellowship, no place with him. In essence, Jesus says, if I can't forgive your sins, if I can't wash you, 
you cannot have my presence and my power. So if Jesus can't trump our conscience, we can't have his companionship. You know, I don't know if this is super common. I mean, obviously there's spiritual pride that we struggle with as Christians. There's times where we, of course, feel that we must earn God's forgiveness, that we must do certain things to stay in God's good favor. And that's, that's definitely a thing that Christians, by and large, struggle with. But there's also this thing that people often do. I know God can forgive me, but I cannot forgive myself. Let me just say this. This is an affront to the justice of God. You are not more just, you are not more righteous than God, the king and judge of the universe. And if you will not let God forgive your sins by forgiving yourself, you have no portion or share with Jesus Christ. You must allow Jesus to serve you in order to have fellowship with him. And maybe, it, maybe someone in here has that feeling that, oh, I've done it so many times. I've failed in this area so many times. God cannot forgive this again. I'm a liar. I'm a hypocrite. I don't belong. Remember what we talked about weeks ago? It's not about trying. It's about training. It's about training. And part of that training is that we have available to us the forgiving, cleansing act of Jesus. John says this, that if any of us sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the propitiation or the appeasement of the wrath of God toward our sin. Not ours only, but the whole world. We have this, and it's meant to be used. It's meant to be applied. We must let Jesus serve us before we think that we can serve him, that we can serve his kingdom. In order that we can grow in likeness to him, we must continually be washed and be cleansed by our Savior. And so I don't know who you are this morning, but I'll I'll tell you, I know for a fact that you are not beyond the service of Jesus Christ. Let him serve you. Let him go low for you as he clearly wishes to do. Or let Jesus be your Lord and Savior by allowing him to be your servant. It's it's fascinating, isn't it, that the king of glory lives much of his lordship in service to his people. And of course, this is God's desire all along. Jesus came to be the true king, to show us what a true authority looks like, what true kingly service looks like, that the king lives, ever lives, for his people, and not his people for him in that way. He does not eat the sheep. He does not abuse the sheep. He does not use the sheep. He serves his people. He serves the sheep. He feeds the sheep. He leads the sheep. So let our king, let him serve you. And going on, I think the next thing is that we see Jesus the servant is to be followed and imitated. And Jesus says that, right? 
When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments, he resumed his place and said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? There's a few times where Jesus does this. It's just like, look, in case you didn't get it, I'm just going to like focus right in on it. Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, master, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, the blessing is in the doing. It's not about head knowledge. It is about practice. It is about training. It is about application. So Jesus says that, right? He has given us disciples, because that's how John writes this. We're on the end. We're in the upper room with Jesus. We're in the conversation of his last will and testament. We're not just flies on the wall. We're in the inner circle. He's given us an example or a pattern to follow, which means that no follower of Jesus is beyond or above this. Who is lower than Jesus? Everyone. Everyone is the answer. Everyone is below Jesus. Who's below you? I don't know, somebody. Maybe maybe lots of people. Doesn't matter. You were to be the servant of those individuals. You know Judas is here? That's fascinating, isn't it? Because we, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, often we do the deserving, undeserving poor, the deserving, undeserving sinner. Actually, it was last week we talked about this, right? The, the lost son, he's the undeserving sinner. You made your bed, you lie in it. It's fascinating. Judas, his feet were washed by Jesus. And Jesus, it says, he knew it. He knew it. He knew all that was going on. He says to him, what you do, do quickly. All the disciples are like, How, who, what's he talking about? What's, what's, not Judas, what's Judas doing? They're so confused. Jesus knows. Jesus knows about the deception. He knows that Judas is a traitor. And yet, he washes them. So, no follower of Jesus is beyond or above this. If Jesus went low, so must we, if we are truly his followers. And so there's not a single disciple of Jesus that is exempt from this mandate. Now, remember in our first study, we talked about this, Jesus the rabbi, the application was being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, doing what he did. In our next study, we talked about the healing work of forgiveness of sin, and talked about that being at work in our lives and extending that to those around us. Last week, we talked about Jesus... Our Savior and as followers of Jesus, it means that we'll be out looking for lost people. So then, as we consider Jesus the servant, it means that we are called to serve people. It means that this is the posture of God's people to serve others, whatever the need or situation. Now, we all know this, and, and probably those who serve in a leadership capacity. And churches know this better than anyone else. But unfortunately, even in our consumeristic culture, the church has taken on a consumeristic view. 
And so we come into gatherings, you know, maybe we're visiting or we're getting to know a church, and our whole mentality is, what does this do for me? Do I like the music? Did those scriptures speak to me? Uh, was I greeted? Was I considered? Was, you know, and we just go through this, I, 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 me, 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 mine, right? But it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what community you belong to. The posture of Jesus' people is service. So that when we engage with people, whether they're Christian or unchristian, our posture is at your service. How can I serve you? How can I listen to you? How can I find out about your life? How can I come alongside you? How can I bear your burden? It's never, how can my needs be met? It just isn't. And I know that maybe for someone who has come from a place where they have been maybe abused and the, the relationship has totally been lopsided, that's a scary thing, isn't it? But here's the idea. If everyone has that posture, then no one is overlooked. Everyone is served appropriately. If everyone is kneeling to serve, if everyone is lending that listening ear in order to help and to come alongside, we won't miss anyone. But sadly, sometimes we just all act like consumers, and then everyone is missed. And some of the deepest, most serious needs in our midst midst are overlooked. They're missed. An opportunity to be like Jesus, an opportunity to serve those who are hurting and in need is missed. Of course, to practice foot washing at our gatherings, so it might bring a great visual to Jesus' act and stir up our hearts in a unique way, is to miss the point of what Jesus is doing. Jesus picked one of the most culturally degrading, humble acts to show us how we are to live our lives. So it's not an action to follow, meaning literal foot washing, but a continual posture of God's people. I really pray that the Lord like just sears that into our hearts. This is the posture of God's people to serve. That God's people, that we, disciples of Jesus, are people who proactively go low. That we seek out opportunities to make ourselves a servant to others. Now, what might that look like in our everyday lives? And, you know, we, we talk about this often at Refuge. We can't do everything. But what is one thing that we can do? Or I was reading recently in one of my spiritual disciplines book journeys that I'm on, right? I'm reading like a hundred of them. Um, Dallas Willard was actually saying, what do you struggle with the most? Like if you have a really hard time fasting, was his example, then that's probably what you should focus on in your life. Fast. Make that your focus of spiritual discipline. So in service, maybe there's an area where you really struggle to serve others. Maybe it's to, to actually listen and to not speak over someone else and to not immediately compare your situation to their situation. And, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, we're the same. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I had a, I had a really hard week. Oh, my life is really hard, too. And it's like, okay, great. Good talking, you know. 
just miss an opportunity? Do you have the tendency to talk over people and to put your hardships above others? Are you that person? Oh, I only got three hours of sleep last night. Oh, I only got one. Okay. I'm sorry. You tell me about your life then. It sounds hard, right? So what are the areas that we struggle in? I would say, let's start there. Let's start in those areas where, where it's difficult for us to serve others. Maybe the Lord is wanting to do something there. In fact, I would say he is wanting to do something there. But here's just a short list. Listening in conversation. Listening in order to understand that person. In order to love that person. In order to affirm or encourage that person. Good hospitality with others. Whether they're visitors, guests, even door-to-door solicitors. Right? These people are the most inconvenient people in, in like the history of the world. Ding dong. Oh, hi, I see that you're having a really quaint dinner with your whole family. Might I just have a moment of your time to talk to you about the recent, you know, whatever, like political race that's going on in our city. It's like, yeah, don't care, you know. Like, they just don't care at all. But what if we were at their service and just showed them the hospitality of Christ? Good attention to our customers, our clients, students, colleagues in business and work. What if we change the environment of our work by being the servant to our coworkers rather than enter, entering in just to the cutthroat posture of so many businesses? What about good presence and servant posture with our wives, our husbands, and our children? Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church. Wives, honor your husbands as the church honors Christ. What if we actually live those things out? I think being at your service is a whole way of life that Jesus is calling us to. And so these and a hundred other daily responsibilities and opportunities are beautifully pictured by Jesus' foot washing. Is it below you? Well, it's not below Jesus. Okay, well then, there you go, right? Now here's the beautiful thing. Foot washing teaches both the Christian gospel and the Christian ethic. And in following Jesus, in this way, we put the life of Jesus on display for the world to see and receive. See, Jesus' foot washing is a perfect depiction of what God has done for us in Jesus' atoning work. And what God continues to do for us by applying Jesus' atoning work to us. Jesus, this is the gospel, disrobing, taking on humanity, and then stooping to the place of the servant. I mean, Paul just has it. He nails it there in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. This is the gospel. Jesus, who was high and exalted, left the courts of glory in heaven to take upon the need of humanity. He clothes himself in humanity, becomes a servant. And 
incomprehensible that Jesus suffers the shame of the cross. The most gruesome, shameful way, maybe in the history of the world, to die. That this is what God in eternity past chooses. And we know that because of Psalm 22. We know that because of Isaiah 53 and the way that it's written there. It was foreordained. This was God's plan all along. To suffer like no other. Isaiah 53 calls him the suffering servant. What? By his wounds we are healed. It's for us that he comes. It's for us that he serves. It's for us that he suffers the death on the cross. They're taking our sins so we can be brought back to God. Now, in closing, Jesus serves us out of a place of total and complete assurance of his place and identity with the Father. This is really important. It's absolutely vital that we get this in order to apply this teaching. So he's assured of the Father's love, assured of the Father's pleasure on him, knows that he has all power. He knows who he is. Come from God, going back to God, his mission's complete. So he steps down. Jesus, going on in, in John 13, 34, we didn't read it this morning, but he says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Frederick Bruner, who, by the way, if you ever want to study the Gospel of John, by Frederick Dale Bruner's commentary. It's the best. All you Bible nerds out there, calling all Bible nerds. Okay. He's, last time I'll quote him, I know. But he says this. The word as that Jesus uses here is not only comparative, but it's also causative, meaning that Jesus is saying love and serve one another out of the love or from the resources of the love that I have for you. See, Jesus serves us out of the love that the Father has for him. And so we are called to serve one another out of the love that Jesus has for us. It's not that we love God. That's not what it's about. It's that he loves us. And he has freely given that love to us. God says, love people out of that love. Not out of your love and your resources and your capacity, but out of my love for you. And we just read in Ephesians, right? It's incomprehensible. It's deeper than we can imagine. It's higher than the heavens. It's as far as east as to west. That's how great the love of God for us. And as we contemplate it, as we study it, as we meditate upon it, it only grows and grows and grows. So we are to humble ourselves and serve one another out of a place and recognition of what Jesus has done for us. Out of an assurance of the great love that the Father has for us. So here it is. Jesus went low so we could be lifted high in glory. He became poor, Paul tells us, that we might become rich in blessing. He was made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him.
So out of that, we go low. Out of the deep, deep love of God and Christ for us, out of that power, we serve out of that. So last thing I'll say is that Jesus' act, again, it's not just something that we do it. Just do it. It's not the Nike thing, right? It really goes back to our first study. If you are not cultivating a life of being with Jesus, of sitting in the presence of God, of contemplating his deep love for you, you do not have the power or the resources to serve others. You just don't. Peter says this in in his epistle. He says that our love and our service to one another must be fueled by the power of God because the whole point is to put God's love on display. Those people love like God loves and all the world will know by our love for one another, by God's love at work in us, right? But we can only get that love, we can only get filled up if we are being with Jesus. And this is the tragedy of all tragedies, church, is that we try to be like Jesus without being with Jesus. We try to be Christian without being with Christ. And so we, we live for God rather than living with God, and we don't live for God well because we're not living well with him. But you think about just even these past, I know I said it, this is the last thing I was going to say. It's like 10 minutes long, though. Um, but, I mean, think about the whole, everything that Jesus says after this. Abide in me. As the branch cannot bear fruit of its own unless it abides. The word abide is live. Make your home. Settle down. Make a routine, a rhythm to be at home with Jesus and Jesus at home with you. That is how we live out the love of God. That is how we live out the service of Jesus Christ in our culture and in our community. That's the only way we can do it. And so for you who are tired, and this may seem like, oh my gosh, more, do more, do more, do more. No, maybe do less. And start with giving yourself to Jesus in silence and solitude. Start with cultivating the presence of Jesus and just simply to think upon his love for you. His salvation that he purchased for you. Start there. And see how God begins to transform. Remember what Paul says, this will be the last thing that I say. Swear it on the Bible, right? We are being transformed from one degree of glory to the other as we behold the image of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have to behold the face. We have to give place to the presence. We must. So Lord, help us to do that. Oh Jesus, what our world, what our city desperately needs is your service and Lord your people to go out in your name and in your power with your presence 
to do that service. And so, Lord, Spirit, bring us back to Jesus this morning. We pray, Lord, that this message would not just be something that we listen to, but it would be something that we carry with us so that we apply first to be with you and then, Lord, to serve out of those resources, out of that tank of your love. And Lord, now as we move to a time of, of worshiping and responding, Lord, we pray, God, that you would speak to us, Lord, and, and direct the application of this to our lives, to our rhythms, to our priorities, to the people that you've put before us to serve, to help. Direct us now, Lord, into your service.